the Road, the podcast series all about facing failure, overcoming difficulties, improving our research culture, and so much more, all set within the higher education and research environment. If you're joining us for the first time, then you're welcome to listen to these episodes in any order, or pick and choose the ones that interest you. But I do recommend listening to episode one, which is a short introduction to this project, first. That episode outlines what we're trying to do here, how the project came about, why we use the language we use throughout the episodes, and a few other technical bits, such as funding and ethics as well. Although this podcast was made as part of my work as training coordinator for graduate students at the University of East Anglia, I'm not a professional sound engineer or radio host, and all of my guests were volunteers, recording from their own homes with the equipment they had to hand. Please bear with us if the episodes aren't always quite as polished as professional podcasts. The message they convey is what's important here. Speaking of that, I hope you enjoy today's episode and it gives you something to think about, either now or in the future, it inspires you to try something different, or it makes you feel less like the only person in the world when you face setbacks or difficulties in your work. If you have any feedback or comments about this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Contact details are in the show notes. Show notes have been created for this and every episode. They contain links to as many of the books, people, websites, or other resources mentioned by our interviewee, combined with some of my thoughts and notes. Show notes for every episode can be found at emmaelvidge.com forward slash podcast. And it's like, and I realise, you know, that's people saying then that it's better to not try at all than to try and fail. So they'd rather not see it. They'd rather wouldn't be wondering what on earth you've been doing for two years with that gap on your CV than than you've actually done something quite challenging like a PhD and it not worked out. That was Emma Thompson, our guest today. Emma is a PhD student at the University of East Anglia. Emma shares an incredibly brave and personal story of her many setbacks and failures within her academic career to date and how she's come back from them. In particular, the story Emma shares about failing her PhD probationary review, when the common rhetoric is, oh, nobody fails that, is one of the stories that sparked this whole project for me. So this podcast wouldn't be here without Emma's story. Early on in this conversation, we talk about advocating for your needs, and this theme recurs throughout the episode. Whilst Emma has a specific autism spectrum diagnosis she's referring to here, the core message of understanding yourself and advocating for yourself is one for everyone. Hi Emma, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Would you like to introduce yourself and um, say who you are and and how you got to be there, just to start us off? Yeah, Um, so I'm currently a PhD student at the University of East Anglia. Um, I'm coming up to to the end of my second year. Um, I'm based in the School of Biological Sciences and I'm working on a project that's in the field of enzymology and protein structure. So I spend most of my time in the lab um, and I've just had my annual review. So I've been um, quite stressed recently. A, a busy time of year. Yes. How is, have you been managing to get into the lab even during the various lockdowns? Yeah, um, I've actually been in, well, um, the first lockdown, like the original lockdown in 2020, um, I used that time to write my huge literature review for my probation report so that actually worked out really really well so I just had uninterrupted time to do writing but sort of a few months into that lockdown I got permission to work from the office on campus um, you know due to issues with like working from home um, so I've actually been in the department pretty much the whole time and then the labs you know opened I think mm-hmm. later in the summer in 2020 so yeah it's just been um been been just completely normal for me really it's um nice to have something to a bit of normality during the last year I guess everyone needs to find that where they can yeah yeah so before before we started recording when we were arranging this meeting you were telling me a whole 
a whole litany, a whole, your whole experience of different times in your life where things haven't quite gone so well and how you've picked yourself up and tried different avenues or continued down the same path. And it's really interesting. And I'm so grateful that you're happy to share that with our listeners. And I think you wanted to go back and start right at the sixth form or undergraduate um, period and, and tell us a bit about your past experience. So shall we start there? Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So um, basically my, my whole academic journey up until now has included or has consisted of like a string of failures. Um, but looking back, each of those failures has actually shaped the next part of the of the journey. And some of them have even been like blessings in disguise because I wouldn't have ended up what I'm doing, like wouldn't have ended up doing what I'm doing now if something previously didn't uh, go wrong. And then everything has like led to the next thing, if that makes sense. So um, my first sort of major failure was my A-levels. Um, I didn't actually fail, like technically fail, but I was way off the grades that I needed um, to get into my chosen degree at university, which was pharmacy. Um, so that was all that had always been my career ambition. And I was, you know, I got pla- I got places to do um, pharmacy at university and but I needed certain grades and I was way off those grades um so I retook my final year of A-levels in order to try and get those grades to get onto the pharmacy course um but even after retaking the year I still didn't really improve very much so my A-level grades were sort of unexpectedly quite you know shocking uh, compared to um my kind of academic uh, sort of, you know, my GCSEs, lots of A's, A stars, and then suddenly at A level, it just all went downhill. Um, but then I got onto the um, science foundation year at UEA, and that was actually at the. I don't know if it's changed nowadays, but at the time, that was the only university in the UK that offered a foundation year in science for people that had already done science and not done as well. So most foundation years were for if you'd done different subjects and got certain grades, whereas I was in the situation where I hadn't done as well and I just needed, I couldn't get onto the course with the grades I had. So I ended up doing the foundation year um, and my plan was to do the foundation year and then get onto the pharmacy degree at UEA. But the percent grade required was 75%, I think. Um, this was back in 2011. So I, I didn't do, you know, I got 60 something percent, but, you know, it was still way off what I needed to get onto pharmacy. So that was really disappointing. And I ended up doing the degree that I did, which was um, biological and medicinal chemistry, which, again, I don't think that's even that exists anymore. Um, so I ended up on this degree that at the top, like the first few years, I wasn't really very, you know, passionate about it because it wasn't the degree that I'd hope, you know, hope to be on. Um, and in my first few years, you know, I didn't really, I was getting sort of um, second class grades, like um, two twos, mm-hmm. um, like, like, so my overall year percentages were like two twos. Um, and I even failed a core module in my first year. So I think it was because what I wasn't like, completely engaged with with the course um and then in the second year I actually won the Oxford University Press Prize um for most achievement in chemistry I think that was the title but I think it was for the most improved or the student that's like most improved from the previous year or something um but that actually was I think that was like a catalyst for motivating me so it gave me like a little bit of encouragement and then from then on, I actually, there was just this huge, um, like, improvement in my grades. So at the end of the second year, um, even though I didn't, I scraped, like, I didn't quite get a 2-1, but I managed to convince the um, course director to let me on to the, um, the four-year MCHEM. So at the time, I was on the three-year BSc, and you needed a certain percent to get onto the MCHEM, um, but I managed to convince them to let me onto it um and then from then on I just yeah my third year and fourth year I was getting like sort of firsts all the way through or high two ones um and in my third year I actually got a diagnosis of ASD so autism spectrum um condition and 
I don't know whether that might be a correlating factor. So once I got that diagnosis, I had I was then able to access more support from the university and more specific um, support. So I had reasonable adjustments in place. I then had more um, almost like more self-confidence because I then knew that there I knew. Yeah, it just it just it helped in how I kind of how I reacted to situations and everything so and I I wasn't it it, when things went were difficult I would seek I I would not be scared to you know ask for help so I think that might have correlated as well to my grades just massively improving in the final few years obviously that that led into this kept improving improving and then it it gave me the more I improved, the more kind of confidence I got in my ability. And then I ended up applying and getting onto a PhD at a prestigious university. So that kind of was like the peak of the these sort of failures and then like peaks and troughs. And then that was like the height of the kind of feeling like I'd achieved mm-hmm. kind of thing. It is really difficult to ask for help. You said that you part of your sort of tipping point was being able to when things weren't going so well ask for help yeah is there anything that that catalyzed that was there just um anything that made it easier or was it a case of you tried it once and you realized that it wasn't the end of the world to ask for help and then you could do it more often um I think what it was um in my earlier years I'd got I was you know I was well known to the um, UEA student services like right from the get-go but at the time I hadn't actually got an official diagnosis of ASD so I had um, I had like other mental health conditions that I'd got you know evidence for Mm -hmm. but I didn't have this specific I know it's bad to like use labels but I think once I got that specific label or that specific diagnosis it actually made things far easier because I was suddenly um not having to um do you know not having to because I used to have to apply for a lot of extensions because I I I needed staggered deadlines basically and as soon as I got the ASD diagnosis that was just written into my reasonable adjustment so it was like I didn't have to you know go to a lot of effort to justify applying for extensions and things like that um and it made me once I got that diagnosis, I was able to just feel like I was entitled to certain things that I didn't think previously. So um, in exams, like having a um, either a room to myself for my undergraduate exams or a room with only a few people in and things like that. So I was I, I was aware of what help or support was actually available to me. And then I wasn't afraid to make the most of that you know when I needed it it's I mean obviously you have a as you say a specific label or things attached to your group of needs but I think that applies to everyone in some ways doesn't it in that it's what I'm just hearing is it's about knowing yourself knowing what works and then advocating for that yeah definitely yeah so um one thing I remember was that I really, really struggled with any group work. So I remember, you know, dreading any sort of group or let alone like presentations, because that was like both problems. It was the the group work aspect and the speaking in front of people. They were Mm -hmm. my two main things. Um, And in the earlier years, I would have, um, I don't know, maybe even had to have like uh, sort of just not come in or pretend I was ill or something like that. Whereas in the later years, I was confident to just um, let the let the module organiser know. I mean, I think I even introduced myself by email in the later years at the beginning of modules to say, you know, who I am. I've got this issue, and that I am gonna I'm gonna need some allowances around group work. Whereas in the earlier years, I just didn't know how to go about that, and because I think I didn't have that specific label, and in my records as you know it wasn't as um it it wasn't as clear so um whereas I felt in the later years I didn't have to yeah justify myself as much and it was easy to just say um 
this is what I need to happen. So like in my final master's year, um, instead of giving a presentation to the whole cohort, I was allowed to give it just to the, you know, a few members of um, faculty. Mm -hmm. And that then went, you know, that went really well. But and also there was like I remember doing a pre-recorded presentation one time instead of a um, group presentation. So it, it meant that I was able to still have these experiences, like these opportunities, but it was adjusted so that I could actually, you know, do it. Whereas if I'd have had to have done it the same as everyone else with no kind of leniency, I would have, it would have just been awful. Mm-hmm. Are there, do you think it's spilled into other aspects of your life that you now are just um, more confident in knowing who you are and asking for things that you need? Um, I, th- I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I, I'll get onto that later, but when I started the PhD that I'm doing now, um, at UEA, I, I mean, the, I have a disability advisor and she knew me from, or she remembered me very well from undergraduates. So I already had that kind of, that relationship, that rapport. Um, but actually I haven't needed much help like in, in the sort of the last year, which has been amazing Mm -hmm. but yeah I I I, you know I started here and I I already knew I mean I know I already knew the university and how to go about things but even if it was a different university I'd have known how yeah I'd have felt confident going and um Hmm. you know applying for or you know putting things in place that I needed that sounds like a good place to talk about the your first well the PhD journey for you in general and you said you um you know you've gone from a place where you didn't even it took a while to even get into university or a circuitous route and then applying for a PhD you described it as prestigious so obviously somewhere that you felt was um what's the word you know that was a challenge right to get in yeah yeah so did anything in particular give you the confidence to go for it because obviously going for challenging things comes with a risk of a greater risk of failure in some senses doesn't it yeah so um I don't I can't really remember what what happened but I think it was just um I realized in my final year of the MCHEM at UEA that I I you know I didn't want to leave academia yet um and I I started looking into how how to apply you know to PhDs and things I, I, I think I just got it in my head that you know I probably had a chance or, or I don't know. I just, I I got it in my head like it was a challenge. And then I got like sort of obsessed or hyper-focused on this challenge of, um, I mean, the whole application procedure was really, really challenging. And I just sort of became obsessed with it. Um, and then once I, yeah, once I got the place, I think it was like that once I got the place, I kind of wasn't it was it was it was almost like it was all about the challenge of getting that place and then mm-hmm. and then once I got it I kind of wasn't as I'm not sure it was like a, the novelty kind of wore off quickly um once I actually got there and you know reality hit basically Do you want to talk about that a bit about starting the PhD and the journey to realizing perhaps it wasn't the right one for you Yeah so I actually look back on that whole period of time as like a really, really low point in my life. Um, so I was there on that um, PhD for two years, um, but I, and I failed the probationary review. So it was like, it was common knowledge. You know, everyone said that no one ever fails the probation. Um, and there was the whole like imposter syndrome thing. Whereas like I knew... I. I knew I didn't have imposter syndrome. I knew that I genuinely shouldn't have been there. And then some people might view that, what I've just said, as that being imposter syndrome in itself. But I I did fail the probationary review. So, and I think that's like been, you know, drilled into me that, you know, no one fails it, but then I did. Um, and I felt like, I felt like I, I felt like other people thought that I was sort of taking up someone else's place from you know, before I actually failed it. Um, so basically I was, while I was there, I was really, really struggling with my mental health. And then the ASD made certain aspects of the PhD challenging. 
like even more than even more than usual um I think one thing that was difficult was that I chose not to disclose to my peers or anyone about the ASD um condition then but in retrospect I wish I had done because um I think it might have made things a bit easier for me in that um so so my I my supervisor and members of the department like the staff um were aware but then they weren't as understanding as I'd have hoped and like it, it wasn't a supportive env- environment and I didn't have any reasonable adjustments like like at UEA so I was just expected to give presentations and all this sort of stuff you know which just went horribly um but in the end like sort of almost at the point of the two years or maybe it was like a year and a half in things got so bad with like my kind of relationships like my professional working relationships and everything that I had to ask a member of staff to disclose by email on my behalf to like my research group and then um I felt like the people's attitude towards me changed in a positive way but then I I've always felt that that's quite sad that it kind of took that um and like the difference between how people were with me before and then after so yeah in hindsight I think I should have disclosed at the start because then people would have been a bit more aware of why I seemed like I did or why I behaved a bit differently to other people why I um found things certain things more challenging um so yeah just everything you know everything the whole experience was really bad um I ended up taking quite a lot of time off I had a lot of like just minor minor health ailments um but I ended up you know I think it was all interlinked because I was just struggling in general um and I think any excuse to sort of you know take time off because I you know I hated it really and I ended up taking a medical intermission for about four months and that was because of mental health um but when I spoke to people I had to kind of because of the stigma I had to kind of you know just say it was physical health um I felt like everyone was like quite judgmental and then I felt really uncomfortable I hated being in being in the department in the lab because I was lab-based and I just became really avoidant, which then exacerbated the situation. So, you know, I was always, yeah, just hating, dreading going in, basically. Um, you know, my I, I had these, um, I looked back at these old supervisor reports and these, you know, I these certain phrases that they used stood out to me. Um, things like, that I'm very slow to absorb new information. I'm extremely slow in getting anything done. Um, I've got poor memory. I need to learn to be more efficient. Progress has been negligible. All those sort of, you know, comments are all inextricably linked to my, like, diagnosis, like my things that I find challenging. And it's things that can't, are so ingrained or, like, can't be actually resolved. And so I felt like there was the understanding wasn't there from mm-hmm. other people. I had several extensions and I took this intermission. I ended up having my probation review about nine months after everyone else had it. Um, and I felt like they'd, you know, I, I, I'd wrote a probation report. It wasn't great, but, you know, I wrote one and I did prepare for it. And then I felt like the two examiners, they'd already made their decision before giving me a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I they, I wasn't even in there very long. And they basically said, um, they, they kind of said that they could tell that I didn't want to be there. And I was kind of in shock because it kind of hit me that, what am I going to do? And then I was worried about, like, as soon as I left left that room, I was then panicking about being, like, homeless because... I was thinking, what if I can't get a job? I can't pay the rent. So I started majorly panicking. Um, And I remember there was a time where I was kind of in denial. So I was then thinking, like, I need to beg them to, like, let me stay. Um, Like, they wouldn't even let me 
convert to a master's because I, my progress hadn't been enough to even, you know, write it up as a master's. Um, so I left with a, a certificate of postgraduate studies. But even for that, I had to do corrections. And I was then working full time. So it took me six months to do the corrections, which was awful because I was then working full time and tired, you know, like nine to five um, with only like one day off a week to do these corrections. And it's difficult to not be in an academic frame of mind anymore. And then on your one day off a week from Mm -hmm. employment, having to dig out the academic stuff. And it just, I didn't have like a nice chunk of time to just finish it. It was, and that was because I, once I sort of got, once I was asked to like leave the PhD, um, I I couldn't take time off. I had to get a job because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to pay the rent. So I had to get a job and I managed to get one like within a week or within a week and a half, I think it was, which was good. Um, and then, yeah, straight away started that and then having to do corrections. So, and it was difficult to kind of adjust, you know, adjust to that. But I think I did it quite well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in hindsight, I am, I'm glad that that happened. So that, you know, that failing, they said they didn't, they said they didn't want me to think of it as failing, but then like, that's basically what it is. Um, I failed the probation review and yeah, in hindsight, I'm glad because like, I dread to think how much worse my whole like mental health and well-being and life would have been if I'd have stayed. Um, it would have just got worse. So, and then, like I said earlier about each of these like failures leading to the next or shaping the next part of my journey. Like if that hadn't have happened, I wouldn't have ended up like where I am now. So yeah, Mm. in hindsight, it it was a good thing. Thank you for sharing that first of all, because that's really brave to be so open about such a difficult time. That's okay. I think, one thing that I've I wrote down and underlined and actually you said it in um in an early email when I was first fleshing out the ideas of this whole failure project about failing a probationary review and that the common dialogue around probationary review is oh don't worry nobody fails it and and I hear that I hear that all the time I did back when I was a PhD student it's just an offhand comment of yeah uh you know when you say to your super or you just mentioned it in the coffee room oh um got my probationary review next month a bit nervous oh don't worry nobody fails it yes and people people mean it well but it struck that was one of the things when you said that that triggered to me that it's not sometimes it's that failures aren't being discussed and that was one of the reasons for me creating this project was that people just don't discuss how common it is in research yes and so that but then another aspect is that sometimes we do discuss failure like that but we don't discuss it well and I think there are really common and so one of the ways I think people handle failure is is the dismissive model is what I'm calling it that whole don't worry nobody does but the thing is if a system exists with failure built into it built into it some people will fail or or will not whatever words you want to use and we're using the word failure but you know as you said like in your case in some ways it it wasn't a failure just wasn't the right fit for other people there might be other reasons but some people will not move on to the next stage let's put it that way and it's just um yeah really made me think about that how we talk about things and I don't know do you have any thoughts about how we could better handle situations where it's not common and we do want to reassure people that the majority of people will be okay but but it's it won't be for everyone yeah um one thing I'd like a significant point that I was going to mention I don't know if it answers your question but I remembered when when I was applying for jobs or positions after failing the probation and that I was advised to actually leave it, leave that entire two years off my CV um, because it was a millstone round your neck. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and I realise, you know, that's people saying then that it's better to not try at all than to try and fail. So they'd rather not see it. They'd rather wouldn't be wondering what on earth you've been doing for two years with that gap on your CV than than you've actually done something quite challenging like a PhD and it not worked out so I don't understand yeah it's and and that's something that is obviously ingrained in maybe like the professional environment in society I don't know whether that's 
you know that's just seems so I don't I don't know how we could change that but um I mean yeah like you said the, the probation review the whole point of it is to um assess if a student has the potential to make it to a you know to to <clears throat> to make it as a successful PhD student because a PhD isn't for everyone and that is what that process is there for and you know I'm glad that I um what happened with my previous one where I I sort of was asked or advised you know to leave it there because otherwise it would have been like um what's the phrase like flogging a dead horse basically yeah, and yeah. you know making me really depressed and just not good for my health in general so um yeah I'm not sure if that answers your question but I think it is really important about the whole like you know leaving things off your CV because it like this relates to anything like you know if you failed anything it's like people would rather leave it out and not because they don't want to discuss it and you get to like an interview and then it's like the elephant in the room and yeah you know you have to be careful I, I remember uh you know having to be careful how to how to word things because they don't want to ever hear anything negative and I'm actually someone that's very open when I'm talking about things like this I'm completely honest and open, like transparent. And it's difficult for me to be told by people in like job application or PhD application processes. It's, it's difficult for me to be told to like, don't say anything negative or keep things, keep things positive or spin things in a positive way. It's mm. quite difficult for me because I'm very, very transparent about, about failure. So I think, yeah, more people should be like that. I think that has answered it. I think, well, there is no, there is no easy solution, but one of the ways that we, we counter a lot of these issues around failure is just to be more open and honest, having conversations like this. And, yeah. Um, but it is difficult, especially as you say, when people are telling you not to do it. And I spoke to someone in an earlier episode when they was, we were talking about um, normalize failure or normalize rejection which is you know on, on a twitter yeah. hashtag and people sharing grant failures and they were saying they can understand why early career researchers phd students and postdocs don't do that because if then you apply for say any job or a lectureship for example and people look up your twitter and you just posted that last week you didn't get a grant it doesn't look they think it doesn't look good whereas in reality it's just but, but you tried didn't you and it's part of part of research life yeah it's all about portraying I mean in anything like that you have to portray your best mm. self don't you so it's it's you're never being yeah it's, it's difficult but trying something is yeah at least personally and I think a lot of people do feel like this that your best self isn't just your wins is it it's the things yeah, that you try yeah, exactly because then that that shapes yeah. everything and you learn from it don't you so yeah the other thing I wrote down from that story you shared was that when you went into your probationary meeting, you said that the panel, that they could tell that you didn't want to be there. Yeah. And I wondered if part of this, part of this, um, did you, did, did you perhaps carry on longer than perhaps was healthy because you, because you felt like you should keep going because oh, as, you, yes. as we've talked about, like this whole, like quitting and failing is bad or whatever. Yeah. Um, yes, actually now you say that, um, that's just reminding me of something. I remember having like a, a, I can't remember how far in this was, but I remember being being like at my mum's house at Christmas and I'd got this like some academic papers with me that I was trying to read. And I remember like having this wobble and like basically thinking, I don't even know if I want to do this. But then, but then like it was, I just had, you know, I just didn't know how to, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I can't even remember what I was thinking about then, but like, I, I knew I had a, I had a, I was very doubtful back then, but I just, I didn't even consider, I don't think I considered leaving. I think I remember having a, a period where I was thinking about like switching to a different a sort of different mm. subject, one that I was more like like sort of a different subject and a different project but then I didn't really know how to go about that and then I thought you know that that that's going to be then a whole like a huge 
thing to try and like I'd have to reapply I think and I I just you know carried on going because I just didn't know how to go about like changing that I think I'd identified myself really but I I think I was in denial so I you know I'd spoke to my family about it um and I think one of the things is uh my dad um is quite I can't can't think of the word he he is very I don't know how to word it um so basically it's difficult to to Mm. tell my dad about failures Mm -hmm. um so when I didn't get on to, when I originally didn't get on to pharmacy at university and I got on to my chemistry degree instead, I ended up actually lying to my dad for the entire degree and he thought I was doing pharmacy until it was graduation and I still didn't tell him. So we had quite a, that was quite a difficult, um, a difficult day because I then told him on my graduation that I had actually been doing chemistry, not pharmacy. And that was all because I didn't feel like I could say I didn't get in or I didn't, you know, I didn't, didn't achieve getting onto that. Um, And then that, that led into, you know, he was so proud and everything that I got, got into that prestigious university onto a PhD. And then obviously when it was, you know, when it was going badly, which was most of the time, I think I felt like I couldn't tell him how badly it was going um and yeah I've forgotten the question now (laughs) the question was on um carrying on with things longer than perhaps you should yeah yeah so definitely yeah so it was difficult to um you know I felt like I couldn't say to him um I don't think this is working out I'm going to do something different because it was just you know I'd I'd got on to this I'd got this opportunity to do this to do this PhD somewhere and um yeah so I definitely carried on definitely definitely carried on longer than usual um and I think everyone in the department like the staff members could see that with all of the you know I look back at these these um PhD supervisor reports and you know I think only the very first term was satisfactory and the rest were unsatisfactory Mm -hmm. um and you know it was like I felt like they couldn't wait to get rid of me and yeah, in hindsight, I probably should have made made it actually took a decision upon myself and decided to leave. So since I've been at UEA um, this time round on, on this PhD, I, I've seen people actually do this. I've seen people, you know, say it, it's too much. They're struggling. It's bad for their mental health. And they've and they've made the decision and they've left. And I really respect that because they haven't just you know carried on when it really isn't working and they've actually you know took that decision themselves so I I think that's really good when people actually do do that it is it's a really it's a really brave decision and then it really normalizes it for everyone else I I don't think it's anything for us to discuss more but I just wanted to touch on um you mentioning that in in your case your dad but I, I think maybe people have other experiences of this of someone yeah. not even someone in your life not yeah. even giving you chance to discuss failure and that yeah that hasn't come up in any other in so far we've been just talking about how we can encourage people to discuss failures and things and no, what hasn't come up is do we block other people and I just thought oh gosh is there anyone in my life where the way I'm acting the words I use are stopping them just stopping them from even bringing it up you know yeah. and and so i unless you have anything to add to this, I don't think we need to go into it more because it was a very personal story, but just to raise to people listening that like, that is one thing we can consider when improving our discussions around this is, are we even allowing this discussion to be had, if that makes sense? Yeah, I I think definitely. Um, I actually hadn't, I'd completely forgotten about that whole like little anecdote. And then I, um, I just realised, you know, that that's quite a really significant part, isn't it? About, um, you know, having to hide the fact that, having to hide hide something from a you know a close family member because you're worried about you know worried about the fact that you you know you've you failed at something so Mm. yeah yeah and it could be it could be friendships it could be the supervisory relationship 
yeah um, and it's probably I, I'm not putting this on your instance but thinking about people in my life where perhaps this has happened in some cases I don't even think it's like deliberate it's just that people are proud of you and they use certain language and then yes, it just shuts yeah. the situation down doesn't it so. yeah definitely yeah yeah well you went through all that and that's so difficult and I'm also just think it's really courageous that you you plowed on to wrap it up with a qualification rather than just walk away and then after that whole time you have tried again you applied for another PhD so what what led you to to want to try again after it didn't work the first time around okay so so if I just backtrack ever so slightly so basically so I ended up after the first attempt Mm -hmm. I ended up working as a dispenser in a pharmacy for Mm -hmm. a year um I didn't I didn't set out to say I'm going to do it for a year I just needed to pay the rent I needed to you know get a job and it was actually something that I really enjoyed because again if you um I originally wanted to do pharmacy and be a pharmacist so then I sort of I didn't just take any old job to pay the rent I actually thought okay I want to do this be a dispenser because then at least it's something I'm I do actually you know I like I like that kind of I like the pharmacy side of things um but then um so basically after a while I just you know I felt I, you know, I enjoyed it. It was that mundane nine to five. I was in a routine. Um, I think it was actually what I needed because, you know, I, I had to take a step back from academia, you know, um, and just be, be in employment. And I had responsibilities and I had to learn to work in a team, which doesn't actually come naturally to me. So that was that was like the first time I properly had to work in a team because I think I was always thinking about the roof over my head. So I was thinking I need to pay the rent. I need to be good at this job and not get fired. So that was like my first proper experience of like real world, like in employment and you know I couldn't call in sick or all this and that was another thing um I was I took I said how I took a lot of time off at the other university uh yes I said like how I took a lot of time off but then working in you know a a full-time job this was also quite bad in that like you know you weren't I felt like you were barely allowed to be be take days off there because whenever anyone else was off I remember people would sort of be um gossiping about uh what oh oh they're off all the time and that then so I went from sort of taking a lot of time off while I was on a PhD to then working in full-time employment and barely pretty much never ever having a day off because you know it it was difficult so um yeah so it was a nine-to-five I learned a lot of I developed a lot of professional and sort of interpersonal skills from that job that I didn't ever get from the from the PhD but after like a certain amount of time I started to feel like I was like stagnating um so I felt like I needed more intellectual stimulation um I was surrounded by people that like hadn't really gone to university or anything so the conversation topics for me were quite yeah just not stimulating at all and I then started to think you know I've, I've got all these qualifications and I'm not I'm not you know taking advantage of them and the other thing that I was struggling with was there was no room for progression in that job mm. so it was like I ended up having like a bit of like a quarter life crisis because working in a pharmacy but not as the pharmacist um made me you know I really I I suddenly had this like I got obsessed then with like wanting to go back to university and do an undergraduate pharmacy degree so then I I was like obsessed with looking how to get you know how to get funding to do that but you just you just can't get a second student loan if you've already had one um so that was really frustrating and I think it like it opened a can of worms like you know working as a dispenser opened a can of worms about like it, it it want, it got me wanting to do pharmacy again and, and actually study pharmacy and be a pharmacist. But like I said, there's no room for progression. So you can't go from being in that job all the way to being a pharmacist because you have to go to university. And obviously mm-hmm. I'd already used my stu- student loan. So um, 
what happened was um, I then decided at some point to move back to Norwich. Um, this is to do with my partner and like us moving in together and him starting a degree at UEA. Um, so I actually, so I was looking for then, I wanted to move to Norwich. I was looking for jobs because I, I knew I needed to get a job in Norwich. Um, and I actually saw the PhD advert by chance when I was looking for jobs. Um, and I recognised the name of the supervisor, the, the research um, supervisor for this PhD. I recognised the name and it was one of my old lecturers when I was an undergraduate at UEA. So I thought I had nothing left to, you know, I had nothing to lose. So I applied for that PhD and there were only, there was only like a few days. I think it, this was a Friday and the deadline, the deadline for the application was the Monday. Um, so really, really tight. You know, I, I did think, you know, is it worth it? I'm never going to be able to smash out a good application in just two days. But um, the supervisor of the PhD, I contacted him and he was really supportive with the giving me feedback on my CV and he was encouraging and he told me to apply for it. And at the time, I thought maybe he was just being nice and didn't think I stood a chance. But then actually, I ended up, I had an, in, he, you know, I got through to the interview with him. And then I got through to the next stage, which was the panel interview with the DTP that I'm on. So the um, Norwich Research Park um, doctoral training programme. So that's and, for your funding, isn't it? Just yes. That, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so when, so your question was about like, why did I decide to do a PhD again? So yeah, yeah just because I wanted the the job that I was in was not intellectually stimulating. I needed more progression. I needed to move on with my career. And then I sort of saw that PhD by chance. I wasn't actually thinking about ever. I don't think I'd even thought about doing a PhD again specifically. But then when I saw that project and I thought, you know, I think I've got the right kind of back academic background for this. And yeah, I, I went for it. And it's like the best decision I've ever, ever made looking back. Oh, good. And it does sound, you told the story differently. When you spoke about applying for your first PhD, you said you were finishing your MCAM and you wanted to stay in academia. And so it was like the driving force was staying in the academic environment. And then you applied yeah. for things based on that. You know, you applied, whereas this time it was the PhD just fitted rather than sort of picking a PhD to fit this. I'm not wording this very well. Yeah, you, you wanted something and, and um, you were just, you know, applying for PhDs to meet that end. Whereas this time you weren't looking specifically for a PhD, but you found one yes. and it felt like a good fit. So you yes. went for that. Yeah, def definitely. It just, it came along at the right time. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, yeah, it, it, I only actually, I only actually had one year out of academia because it was, and it, it worked out quite well that I saw that in time because it started in the October. And I think this was in the, um, this would have been in the summer. So it, I think it was like the advert, I think apparently it was like, you know, the second call for applications. So, you know, it, it wasn't like, I think, yeah. So it, I applied for it and then it was starting, you know, not, not that many months later. And then I had to then have the stress of like giving notice into the job, finding somewhere to live and all of that. And it's really, really stressful. Like it was such a stressful moving moving cities was just so so stressful as well as you know I knew this PhD started I had a start date then I had to find somewhere to live I know everyone has you know that's the same for everyone but um yeah really really stressful but once I got here settled it's all been really really good such a complete different experience good was there still any part of it though after you got accepted where you thought do I want to go through this again you know, based on that first, you know, trying something for the second time when it doesn't work the first time, was that a little bit scary or did you just feel this was a, the right fit this time, right from um, the beginning? I think, um, I think that, so I ha obviously had to have the probation review here. Mm. Um, and that, that was like, a, I don't know if, again, I don't know if this is answering the question, but that was like a huge deal for me because of obviously failing it previously. Um, so, and obviously I, I then, whereas everyone else was sort of not worried that much because of that comment about no one failing it, 
I'm sitting there thinking, well, actually, I have failed it. So I was then quite, you know, I was worried, even though I had, I don't think I had anything to be worried about because I put so much effort in. Um, I, I still was worried thinking, you know, what if I have, what if I haven't done enough? And yeah, what if it goes wrong again? So, um, and, and I still worry now about like, I, I keep dreading, you know, how am I going to write the thesis and all this, but I, yeah, it's going so well in general that I don't, I'm not worried about, I'm not, the only thing I'm worried about is if something drastic in my personal life was to go wrong, that would then, because I struggle with like, if something happens, it will just like, you know, throw everything into chaos, basically. So I've got stability at the moment. And that is, that is also a huge factor. So as well as like the, you know, the environment, the work, the PhD environment at this university is completely different. It's more supportive. Um, and like you said, like people do to do discuss their worries about failure a bit more. So it's really supportive. But then the other factor that's a huge thing is that I have a really, really supportive boyfriend as well. And I've got stability. So I could sit here and say, I know that everything's going to be fine but then you know life happens doesn't it so I do there's that little voice or that little worry that little doubt somewhere in the back of my mind that says what if something happens um I mean even moving house that's 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 really really stressful for me but yeah um like I worry what if something happens unexpected and then causes loads of chaos and then like I don't know just I I have to like I, I just I don't know it, yeah but you carry on despite that little voice so do you have anything yes. that do you have anything to help like when you do start feeling like that what what do you say to yourself or what do you do to allow you to carry on um I think that little voice is, is only there if I really think about it so because you because I'm, re- I'm you asked the question and then I'm trying to think Okay, I was yeah. trying to think, like, do I, do I ever, do I ever worry about, I'm thinking, yeah. well, when I stop and really think about it, I think, well, is it called devil, devil's advocate? Is is that the phrase? Like, I, I think, well, there could be something that happens that throws everything off course. But yeah, when I'm, if I'm not actually really trying to think about it, it's, yeah, it's, um, that voice isn't really there. And I'm just, yeah, everything's going really well. Good. Oh, I'm so glad to hear it. Did it, um. Did anything, though, about your past experience change your behaviour at the start of this or your feelings at the start of this PhD? Um, yeah, so I think I I came into it with, like, a completely different perspective to someone going in for the first time. So I knew how hard it is. I, I knew what challenges I personally was going to face. And then I would have, like, dealt with them. So one of the things was when I started... Um, I was in a shared office with a few other of my research group members. Yeah, I remember from yeah. like my previous PhD experience that I get really avoidant. So of like going into the department and stuff. So say I had like um, written work or reading to do, I would always be doing it somewhere else, like in a cafe. So when I started here, even though I knew I didn't really like sharing an office with people, I felt a bit uncomfortable, especially when I first started. Um, and I'd rather have like had my own space. I actually actively decided to, you know, spend time in that shared office because I knew that it would be good for me in the long run. So things like that, where I, I identified something that I kind of could have done better previously, or or I identified something and I know how to solve it almost. So I came in this time and did things differently. And yeah, I mean, and then, but it's kind of gone the other way in that my work-life balance is really, really, it's completely the, the opposite end now. So I put so much pressure on myself and I think, I think it's almost like I've got a chip on my shoulder from the previous experience and now I kind of I'm overworking because I I feel like I'm making up for like the previous PhD where you know I was always having time off and I I didn't I wasn't motivated I didn't I didn't put the effort in and now I'm doing the exact opposite so like I'm pretty much in the lab every weekend and you know 
even when I'm at home in the evenings, I never, ever switch off. I'm constantly, it'll be like late at night, I'll have probably gone to bed and then I'll just think, oh, I just need to look this up. And it's like, it's it's just, I'm I'm so different. Because, and it's all these experiences that have like, you know, led to that. Mm. But you're, what I just hear in everything you say is just how self-aware you are. So, you know, you're aware now that perhaps it is slightly overworking. Yeah. Um, but it sounds at the minute like you're enjoying it. So that might not be sustainable long term, but it's just that. The yeah. awareness, the awareness of how you work best. The aware- yes. You know, so, OK, I don't work best in the shared office, but I'm going to give it a go. Um, you know, that's I think. I think that's just such a good thing to learn. I mean, have you always been that self-aware? Is it reflective practice? Is it is it partly the fact that you have had um, support from student services and a diagnosis, or or what are the, you know? How do you become to be, diagnosis aside? It sounds like you yeah. know yourself really well anyway. So how did you get to that position? Um, I actually don't know, but I've heard. Or I've loads and loads of people have have said the same as you. They've 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 actually said like they're, they're impressed at how yeah self aware I am. Hmm. And I don't know whether that's just come from having in the past like you know I I've had um, you know like psychiatrist assessments or like um, though any sort those sort of things where you have to talk about yourself and your um, what's the word like. Um, we, yeah, just anything like that where I have to yeah. explain. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think they've always, I've always had that same comment about being very, very self-aware, but I'm not sure where that came from. Um, I don't know whether that maybe is some sort of aspect of my ASD that makes me like that. Mm. I'm not actually sure. Or just all the years yeah. of having to talk in these sort of, uh, to, to, you know, mental health professionals or like counselling type or Mm. you know at the UEA you know the well-being service any sort of thing like that where I have to um you know talk openly about myself about problems Mm. so well it's a great skill to have so (laughs) yeah be grateful for it I think if we start to to wrap up your story I, I guess if what what are the sort of take home messages? So if something went wrong in the lab now, if a project, you know, failed or didn't go so well, if you had bad results, one of those months, you know, when you keep trying things and they don't work, what would you do? What would you do? Is there anything you've learned that would shape how you act in that situation, how you talk about it or how you behave? Um, I actually don't know because the, the only thing that, like, like that I've, thought is um obviously if if it's like with the previous experience you know don't don't drag something on that's you know Mm. really not working but then I you know I'm already halfway through now and everything's going you know relatively successfully so there isn't that but I think I think just not being avoidant is one of my things so if I'm having a problem you know I'll I'll I mean I've always been like this or in relatively recent years you know I'll seek seek help or I'll Mm. communicate about it like I need to not be avoidant about things um uh but yeah I I can't really think of anything um that I that I would do there was in terms of like take-home messages for me the main thing that I wanted to say was about um you know failures um it's not always a bad thing they can be blessings in disguise and that mm. you know things things of often don't work out how you want you know at the beginning but then you'll end up it'll all work out it it can yeah I think that's what I wanted to wanted to say but I, d- I don't know about yeah about that's how fine. to react differently to things that's fine and it sounds like everything's been going swimmingly so I guess you haven't had the chance to find out yet and if and I hope it doesn't if something comes up I'm sure you'll have learnt things you know that you that have happened in the past will help shape better reactions better responses to things in the future that's true for most of us I think yeah is there I've got a couple of wrap-up questions one I think you've just answered but is there anything else you wanted to share before we start to finish up um just 
I think yeah that the message about like um I had I'm sure I had a, I had a note about this and I've forgotten what it was but yeah one of them was about um oh, I've forgotten I had a note that was like my little message my uh conclusion and now I've forgotten what it was I think you just gave a really nice one of <laughs> of that you know failures sometimes being blessings in disguise yeah. right and and that's not true all the time but I'm not yeah. sure that's that's something that's come up in some of the other conversations so it's right. nice to hear a case where that's where things have wrapped up and and you yeah. realized things weren't a right fit and stuff so that's nice that would probably be my two sort of rapid fire finishing questions that I'm asking everyone yeah. the first one is what would you tell undergraduate you or new you know what would you tell 10 years ago you now so would that be what you would tell them uh, if there was like one piece of advice for their academic career yes definitely and also don't you know it's okay to like uh don't know take a break from academia mm. and actually do you know do it come back when you are when you actually really want to so yeah like with my sort of how it happened you know I don't think you know I applied for a PhD the first time for the complete wrong reasons it was you know I, I didn't I think I, I didn't really think about it before I applied, but it was more like I, I just wanted to stay. I didn't want change. So I was like, I want to stay in academia. I wasn't ready for the real world. And I think, yeah, advice would be, you know, to not actually just, yeah, just to actually yeah. think of other options. Don't just think that's that it has to go that way. That is so true. There is, I think, growing less and less so, but definitely this sort of like, once you've gone it's difficult to come back yes um, at an early stage people are like oh because you get out of the habit of it you know you're um and then at a later stage it's like oh because if you get off the treadmill you you can't come back you'll have you'll be outdated but but it's not true and the experience you get from working or doing something else outside of academia it does come it does fit you know it's not I, academia is no longer an isolated environment we need the world the otherworldly skills so yeah, that is great advice. I think that just reminded me actually of what one of yeah. my, what one of those like little messages was that I completely forgot. Perfect. I think what I what it was was that um to say that people shouldn't ever be put off by going for something that they think they might not have a chance or if you failed at something previously, it doesn't mean to say that you can't oh, yeah. do it again. So I remember hearing a lot of things about like oh you know you don't normally hear about people um getting on to another phd after having a failed one so yeah definitely like you know that you shouldn't be put off or you can't just assume that it's you know you can't have a second chance because sometimes the second if i hadn't had all of these i feel like i've had loads of second chances throughout my like career or academic history um, and if I hadn't have had those second chances, I, I wouldn't be where I am now. So, um, you know, if I'd have done a little bit, if I'd have not done, if I'd have done a little bit worse in my first year of undergraduate degree, I probably would have been, you know, gone like back then. So. Yeah, um, that sounds like a great, sorry, you finish up. Oh, no, I was just going to say like, yeah, so, um, you know, a sec second chance and then people can people can change and people can be motivated by like uh what's we like some you know little successes motivate me and then mm. it just goes on from there and just you know exponentially kind of you know gets better but then same as failure you know one little thing can go bad and then it can all spiral downwards yeah. so yeah but I love that. I love that as advice to end on the whole the second chances thing, because that's advice yeah. to individuals of yeah. just because something went wrong does not mean just because you failed at or you didn't achieve something does not mean you are a failure and you can yeah. try again. Yeah. But also it's advice for the community as a whole to not write the you know, that every each circumstance is an individual one. And again, something didn't go right for someone that that situation did not go right it's not that yeah. everything will not go right so yeah that's a that's a great place to wrap up and a good take-home message so um unless you have anything else to finish with um and just yeah don't 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 cover up and avoid talking mm. about failure <laughs>
when oh, you're yes. like in interviews and things like just I think I think it's I think it's really I think it's um impressive when people have the confidence to talk about it and to yeah not shy away from it and that's exactly how I was going to thank you at the end to say I is impressive well I'm grateful that you are willing to be so open about it whilst you're still within this PhD itself you know because it's difficult to be honest and say I've tried this before it didn't work when you're still in something when people will still may form opinions about it and that's just what the whole situation needs is more people willing to share honestly stories um things that happen things that might not even be complete yet so thank you for for sharing that with me with everyone who will listen to this um it's a really valuable thing for people to hear and thank you for the for the opportunity to speak about it episode but remember you can find lots more links and resources over in the show notes at emmaelvidge.com forward slash podcast